thanks for joining us on Chicago Tonight Black Voices. I'm Brandis Friedman. On the show tonight... I, was, I wasn't responding to the morphine. I was in incredible pain. And they said... Racial disparities in childbirth is the focus of a new documentary. Eviction is just one small step close to being homeless. Exploring the relationship between homelessness, poverty, and evictions in a new exhibit. Did Jimmy Jam just hand me a Grammy? And one-on-one -on -one with Chicago poet Jay Ivey, fresh off his third Grammy win. And now to some of today's top stories. Chicago's top cop visits Washington, D.C. today. Police Superintendent Larry Snelling joined President Joe Biden along with other police chiefs at the White House. The president touted a decrease in crime, saying that nationally homicides were down 12 percent last year. The White House says Chicago invested $100 million in federal funding to reduce crime, including violence intervention efforts, youth employment programs and alternative responses to 911. The Biden administration also says Chicago received $6 million in Department of Justice grants to hire or retain 50 officers. Homicides in Chicago dropped 13 percent last year, but violence numbers remain among the highest in recent decades. And it'll cost Chicago taxpayers an additional $4 million for the city's contract extension with ShotSpotter. That's the controversial gunshot detection system. Records show the city signed two contracts in February with Sound Thinking. That's the company that makes ShotSpotter to reach that total. The system's last day in Chicago is set for November 22nd. That includes the two-month transition period, which mayor, the mayor's office says will allow the Chicago Police Department to revamp its technology centers. By then, the city will have spent more than $53 million on the system since it was implemented in 2018. For more on this story, please visit our website. And it may not be that cold this weekend, but Mayor Brandon Johnson and nearly 5,000 other brave souls are taking the plunge. That's the polar plunge. People in perfectly warm, dry clothes are going to run into Lake Michigan Sunday morning to raise funds for the participants of Special Olympics Chicago and Special Children's Charities. Last year's plunge was the biggest in the organization's history and raised over $2 million to pay for transportation to competitions, uniforms, sports equipment, and more for the athletes. Good luck to them. It's not too late to sign up, folks. Up next... A new documentary exploring racial disparities in childbirth. That's right after this. Chicago Tonight, Black Voices is made possible in part by Fifth Third Bank and by the support of these donors. Third, we believe when diverse voices are heard and empowered, communities are made stronger, lives are made better, and the future holds greater promise for all. That's why we're proud to support Chicago Tonight Black Voices. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can drive change. <laughs> um, okay. Black women are twice as likely as white women to die from a pregnancy-related condition. That's according to last year's maternal mortality in Illinois report, which also found 91 percent of those deaths were preventable. The new documentary, The Fight for Black Lives, chronicles the stories of black mothers who faced racial inequities in the health care system. It comes as Governor J.B. Pritzker proposes $4 million in his new budget aimed at tackling the issue. Joining us now with more are... 
Mashari Keels, a professor at the University of Chicago and director of the Fight for Black Lives, and Dr. Samir Vora, the director of the Illinois Department of Public Health. Welcome back, Dr. Vora. Thank you for joining us, Mashari. Tell us about how your, your work, uh, your research as a professor, led you to create this documentary. Right. So, first of all, thank you very much for having me here to be able to talk about this. Um, this is essentially the reason why I created this documentary, because if I wrote a research article on it, no one would be reading it, we wouldn't be talking about it. But we've known for a very long time that there are these disparities and that they're large and they have meaningful effects on the lives of the women and the lives, lives of children who might be growing up without their mothers if they pass away during childbirth. Um, and essentially during the pandemic, there was a spike, an increase in, um, as, as, your doc, as you noted, 91% of these deaths are preventable. There was a spike in these preventable deaths because of all of the collateral effects of the pandemic. And the way that we were talking about them in the public media was still as if it was health behavior um, choices and decisions and things that, you know, women could be healthier if they did this or if they did that. And those things are important. But when we look at the gaps, the racial gaps, it's because of our systems and our structures. It's because black women have to deal with so much stress throughout their life course that when they do become pregnant, their bodies are more likely to be worn down, which is called weathering. And that matters. That's not a health choice behavior. It's also issues of access to health insurance. You know, if um, I'm a black woman and maybe I'm more likely to be a single mother, it means I'm going to have to work longer right up to my pregnancy and I'm going to have to get back to work right after that delivery in course, order to maintain that health insurance. And, and, that, and we know that, that that return to work very quickly, there are other complications and I just learned a word here, weathering. Um, and I want to get to Dr. Vora in just a second. Uh, but, you know, we mentioned the documentary, and I know that it has been playing at some film festivals. Um, all of your experts in the documentary are women of color. Yes. That was clearly important to you. Yes, Tell me it why. Was. Um, I love watching documentaries myself. And even when those documentaries are talking about racial issues, when they're talking about issues of inequality, economic, and all of those things, most of the experts are still white. And so it just gave me the freedom when I was doing this documentary to make sure that this was not only talking about um, black problems, but celebrating black experts. All of these women... As, that are my experts, they are at the top of their field. So they're not only talking about it from a research perspective, they're talking about it from a personal perspective. This matters to them. They are not only doing the research, they're doing the work in their communities to create change. And I just wanted to be able to show just that we have all of this black excellence um, you know, and, and, doing and this work. knowledge and, and yes. folks who are doing the work. Uh, Dr. Vora, uh, the governor's budget proposal, it includes $23 million to advance birth equity. Um, and of course, you know, there's birth equity and then there are some other steps that um, that uh, money that's appropriated or that is proposed for children, diapering program, home visiting. Uh, give us a sense of, of what the governor is proposing and what that would look like for women and children. Well, I want to applaud the governor and his leadership on elevating this important issue and really putting in the effort to address these gaps. As you mentioned, $23 million, $4 million to the Illinois Department of Public Health to think about a 
cross-government action plan to help address these disparities, as well as provide birth equity resource grants to community-based providers to really think about this as a community-driven issue. The governor is also proposing $12 million to establish a child tax credit program targeted for low-income families with children under three. Another $5 million to increase the Department on Human Services home visiting program. We know how important home visiting models are around the birth of a child and the first year after birth, as well as a pilot program to invest in getting the critical need of diapers to individuals and families. And then finally, a million-dollar increase in the Illinois Reproductive Health Facilities Grant administered by the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity. All of those combined to really make an effort and show the commitment uh, from the governor and the entire administration around improving maternal health outcomes for those moms as well as their children really at the core of public health and improving the health of communities. So the documentary, it recounts the stories of multiple black women who had painful or harmful experiences through their pregnancy, childbirth, general uh, gynecological care. Here is a moment from that film. So they gave me morphine. And after like two hours, I wasn't responding to the morphine. I was in incredible pain. And they said it would probably be time for an early epidural. It took probably another like 10 hours before I got that. And so they said, well, the baby's not in distress. So let's, let's wait. Let's wait for you to dilate a little bit more. We waited for hours, turned into days. That woman uh, in the documentary in the film, she goes on to say that a white friend who was in a similar situation did not have to wait quite as long and she was delivered much sooner. Um, what, a, what, a, what does this and maybe some other moments in the film tell you about how black women are perceived and treated uh, in the medical industry? Yes. Well, some of the things that we know are that are still persist today that unfortunately is still implicitly taught in medical school that black people are much more tolerant to pain, that um, also ideas that darker skin is tougher and so it can handle more um, in this process. It's also the extent to which do I see you and your humanity and empathize with you when I'm providing care. If I'm able to see you and your humanity and empathize with you, I'm more likely to react quicker um, rather than you know, watching this clinical case unfold in distance and away from me. And so that's a piece of it. One of the statistics that we um, show in the documentary is that when black children, black infants, are cared for by a black doctor, they're significantly less likely to die before their first birthday than when black infants are cared for by a white doctor. Which, and and, and it, there's also obviously the, the talk about how to bring in more black doctors yes. so that there's more access to that, which, which I know is a challenge. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, uh, but uh, Mashari Keels and uh, Dr. Samir Bora, thank you both so much for joining us. Hope to talk about this again in the future. Up next, a new exhibit explores a potential path to homelessness.
recent migrant crisis has shown a light on a problem that already existed in Chicago, homelessness. Several factors can lead to not having a home, but for some, it happens after an eviction. A new exhibit works to explain the relationships between eviction, homelessness, and poverty with help from those who know it best. It's based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning book Evicted by Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmond. As part of WTTW's ongoing initiative, First Hand Homeless, here's a tour. My name is Rosemary, and I was 14 when I was evicted from my home. It's this video that James Lee Williams says he finds especially moving. It's touching. It's about a person that's really pouring out her heart that she lost everything. The video plays as part of an exhibit called Evicted, based on the Pulitzer Prize winning book by Professor Matthew Desmond. Williams can relate because he's experienced it too. I lost everything, you know, due to the fact that um, I was ran over by a car and and it just went downhill. The position where the job that I had during construction, they said I could no longer work there because I got pins and screws in my leg. My money ran out, you know what I'm saying? I wasn't getting no check. Yeah, I was evicted. William says he's still homeless, couch surfing with friends and family, while maintaining a picture-perfect exterior. You know, I just played a role with people like, you know, yeah, I still stay here in this house right here. You know what I'm saying? Like that. And all alone, I don't stay there in that house. All alone, I'm staying here. You know what I'm saying? In the summertime, I might sleep in my car some days. You know what I'm saying? In the summertime, I might go to the hotel. The role Williams plays here at the National Public Housing Museum is educator, helping visitors better understand the impact of eviction on those who experience it. I didn't pay rent for a couple of months, and then they, they came and got me. They said, I got to go. And uh, most of my stuff got destroyed, you know what I'm saying? Um, I got most of my stuff, but then I started putting all my stuff in the storage. I still got storage stuff in my storage now. I got stuff at my mom's house. I got stuff at my auntie's house. I got stuff at my cousin's house. I got stuff at a uh, friend's house. You know what I'm saying? Stuff is everywhere. Part of the exhibit includes this sculptural piece containing the items that make a home tossed onto the street. Where so suddenly all of their most precious family objects are sort of ripped out of their home, bound up, and then in the United States what happens is there's often predatory moving companies that come, take the objects and put them into a storage facility, and then unless the family has enough money, they'll never get their objects back. And so all throughout the nation, there are these warehouses just filled with people's most precious objects. The exhibit relies on educators like Williams and Efren Paderis, who's also homeless, but it also uses numbers. The goal is to illuminate the harsh reality of evictions for low-income renters. In Chicago alone, last year we had, you know, over 24,000 sort of evictions. And so um, we're, we're up there as a city. The numbers also show the disproportional impact on black residents, especially women. As we lock black men up, black women are locked out. And so really, this, you see that black women are most at the risk for eviction in the United States. Though blacks make up only 18.6% of renters, they account for 43% of those who are evicted. For black women with children, the eviction filing rate was 28.4%, compared to the overall filing rate for adults with children at 10.4%.
Research shows that in the U.S., 7.6 million people were threatened with eviction each year between 2007 and 2016. Nearly 3 million of them were children. Some people might think, oh, well, people who are evicted um, don't have jobs. But actually, we have people who are working with us who are hustling, and they actually have three jobs. But because of the housing affordability crisis, he still can't afford to actually live somewhere. Padera says he works, but isn't paid enough to afford rent. Sometimes he stays with friends, but mostly he sleeps outside. First, I was just staying by the train, mostly. Um, not the safest place. I've been robbed twice, um, been assaulted twice. He says he's never been evicted, but knows the pain. I like for people to empathize with people who lost their homes, being evicted and such, because when you lose your home, you lost your private space. You lose your space where you can be safe, where you can be yourself. It's hard to find another place like that. James Lee Williams says it's enough to make him consider his old ways. Years ago, he was sent to prison for bank robbery. But today, he has a good reason to stay hopeful for a better future. My daughter kicked me out of prison because I want her to have the best. You know what I'm saying? My daughter keeps me out of prison. Padaris, Williams, and other educators for the exhibit are participants with Red Line Service, an organization that provides support for artists who are or have been homeless. The evicted exhibit runs through March 10th at the National Public Housing Museum in River North. Up next, Chicago poet Jay Ivey joins us to talk about his latest Grammy win. But first, a look at the weather. Chicagoan Jay Ivey is one of the most high-profile poets on the planet. He's working with A-list artists, includes Kanye West, Jay-Z, and of course, Beyonce. He even gave John Legend his name, used to be John Stevens. Ivey also just won his third Grammy for his spoken word album, The Light Inside. And last year, he even performed at the United Nations. It's a little bit of that. It is our human right to report our truths to write our stories, to protect the voices of the young and the old. But for those that disagree, know that you will not mute our hearts. You will never silent our souls. Strong words. Joining us now is poet Jay Ivey. Welcome yes. back. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Great to be here. I want to come back to that performance at the UN in just a little bit. But first, third Grammy. How did yeah. that feel? Like a dream. <laughs> like, <laughs> you like said, a dream. did Jimmy Jam just hand me a Grammy? Yeah, yes, he did. Yeah, you know, I've just been floating along. You didn't see my cloud when I walked in? I did yeah, notice I just, that, yes. Just floated oh, yeah, on yeah. there. <laughs> Some of the crew started coughing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's been a dream, you know, to, to start with you know, humble beginnings and, and, and dream about reaching certain points to be here and to have moments like the Grammys of all places and heroes like Jimmy Jam handing you statues. It's incredible. Yeah. In your uh, in your speech, you toasted poets. You sounded an yeah. alarm to wake up the spirit. What did you want to say? What did you want people to hear? 
I want people to hear love. I want people to reflect on the beauty in all of us, the light inside of all of us. Uh, we look around the world and we see all the the turmoil that happens, and it's it's you know it's enough of it. It's enough. We need more more balance. We need more love, more light, more joy in the world. And I, I found that poetry is a a very healing tool and a, a way to enlighten the spirit and knock down walls and connect us. So me, my job as a poet, my responsibility is to continue to create in hopes that we can connect. You also said the world needs more poets. Yeah. How can the rest of us tap into that inner poet? Well, I mean, for me, it's simple. I, it's, it's like meditation. I quiet myself. I, I take deep breaths and I listen. And I, I listen to those voices. I listen to the, you know, to my spirit, to my heart. And, you know, I, I listen with a pen in my hand and, and I document what I hear. I, I catch those dreams as fast as I can. And I, I would encourage any and everybody, even if you're not looking to pursue a career of poetry, it's great to, to just get those feelings off your chest, to write those thoughts down, those feelings, those stories, those ideas. Just write it down, write it down, because there's a lot of power in those words. Um, you've also, you've often talked about the influence of your teacher, Ms. Uh, Paula Argue, yeah, yeah. Uh, as well as your mother. When was it that you realized that, you know, that you had a talent, that you had a gift? Yeah, so my, my teacher, Ms. Ms. Argue, my junior year of high school, she made the class write a poem for homework. And then the next day she surprises everyone, makes everybody read their poem in front of the class. I was shy, low self-esteem, lack confidence. So I read this poem afterwards, she gives me an A. I wasn't getting any A's or B's, so I was oh, <laughs> I can't wait to show my mama this. <laughs> I got that A. <laughs> yeah, and then she was like, you have a nice speaking voice. And no one ever told me that. I never even paid attention to my voice as an instrument or, or a, a tool, you know. And... Um, she made me do this show, the first show I ever did. I got a standing ovation, and life immediately changed. And meanwhile, my mother was, she was a, a supervisor at her dialysis unit. She's a retired nurse. Uh, shout out to Lady P. That's my mama. <laughs> she got a rapper name. <laughs> <laughs> she, she must. <laughs> yeah, and uh, she, she would put out these newsletters every month. So she had me write a poem to put in her newsletter. So essentially, my mother was my first publisher you know and she told me like you, you really have a gift and that was my first time hearing that and you know you still have you know it takes time to build that confidence and know that you have something special but it was enough to know I had purpose and it was enough uh, and that purpose was was my north star I knew I love the, the feeling I was getting from from writing from being on stage from the sharing and I just kept pursuing that that feeling and uh, eventually I was like yeah, this is, this is it. This yeah, is where this, you are. And of course, it. your story about Miss Argue also is sort of another one of those examples of, of the power and the impact of, yeah. of a good teacher. Yeah. Um, because we might not be here had she not uh, inspired you at the time. Um, you know, when you're when you're working, when you're writing, do you ever have sort of a clear idea of what stories you want to tell? Or is it all just kind of dependent on like sort of what's on your mind? Uh, it's both. It's both. Sometimes it's just being free. And, you know, sometimes thoughts just come to me. You know, a line may just pop in my head and I'll write that down and that line may end up being the hook for the entire piece. Uh, sometimes people approach me and say, I have this song or I have this project and we're working on this, this commercial. Like I recently did something with the Jordan brand and um, like we, we have this, this piece. Uh, this is the direction we want to go. And then I write a poem to 
you know, get us down to that stream. Yeah, so so it really just depends. You know, I like to be open with it and free and just let it flow however it may come. But the goal is to write it down. I have a poem called I Need to Write. And it's like <laughs> when it hits you, you need to write it down. You know, that's that's the, the, the key, you know. Um, so we played that clip uh, of the you performing at the United Nations that was last year to commemorate uh, Press Freedom Day, an unusual gig for yeah. a poet uh, to mm-hmm. be at the U.N. How do you try to reach audiences that may not be into poetry, um, who may not have the same issues on their radar as you do? Uh, for me, I've I've developed this confidence in knowing that if I feel it, other people will feel it when I'm in the, the confines of my home and I'm just along writing and I say I write a line and and I'm like, oh wow, that's not well I write a line, it makes me laugh later on when I perform it. The same place where I said, Oh, the audience says, Oh, same place where I laugh, the audience laughs. So what it's taught me is that if I feel it, other people will feel it. So when it comes to to issues and, and um important matters of the heart, I know that one, we're all human, we're all connected, we're all, we're, we're all spirits having a human experience. And we're all we, we, that getting folks to relate to yeah, you, obviously. A, and unfortunately, we're actually out of time are there. We, we could talk about it all day. All right. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> Shout out to the poets. <laughs> <laughs> Congrats, Jay Ivey. Thank, Thank you so you. much for joining us. And that is our show for tonight. Be sure to check out our website, wttw.com slash news for the very latest from WTTW News. And join us tomorrow night at 5.30 and 10 for Chicago Tonight Latino Voices. Illinois considers cracking down on how auto insurers set rates, how you might be impacted, and advice for navigating the spread of false information. Now for all of us here at Chicago Tonight Black Voices, I'm Brandis Friedman. Stay healthy and safe and have a good night. Closed captioning is made possible by Robert A. Clifford and Clifford Law Offices, a personal injury law firm committed to giving back to the community through law and philanthropy.